So with that, will you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. We're going to um, finish the book of Jonah this morning, and then I've got one more sermon as kind of a review of the, uh, some of the main points that I'll be sharing next week. Um, but today we're going to finish the text. And what we've seen here in chapter 4 uh, is a, a principal disconnect between Jonah and the Lord, one that has presented itself throughout this story. Jonah did not share God's heart. He didn't. Uh, particularly his heart for the lost, and specifically God's heart for the lost in Nineveh. And what we've learned is that he didn't want to. So not only did Jonah not share God's heart, he didn't want to share God's heart. And last week we considered Jonah's rant, which was directed at God, and God's subsequent reply And we concluded that you will never have a heart for God until your heart is surrendered to God. And then we uh, talked about practical steps toward a surrendered heart, which include identifying your idols. What are those things in your life that are taking up precious real estate and keeping you from the Lord? Identifying your idols, celebrating grace, and then just longing for a heart made new and clean. Today, as we continue to peer in on this exchange between the Lord and Jonah, we see that Jonah continues to complain uh, while God continues to extend compassion. Those, in fact, are the two main points of today's sermon. If you're taking notes, I want to consider how Jonah was consumed by complaint and how God was compelled by compassion. And as we work our way through this final passage, I trust we'll see how we are more like Jonah in this regard than we care to admit. Preoccupied with lesser things, we can grow cold and calloused toward those who are lost in sin and cynical and skeptical and even seared toward the things of God. However, compassionate as he is, God continues to expose Jonah's heart and ours while also graciously revealing his own. So let's read this together. Jonah chapter 4. And I actually want to begin just for context in verse 10 of chapter 3. And then we'll read through chapter 4. Now when God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said that it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you again for these moments we share together in your word. We thank you that it is your word that you have spoken and you are still speaking even today. You you draw near to us, you interact with us, you speak with us. And all of this demonstrates how kind and gracious and caring you are. You want us to know right from wrong. You teach us the truth of your word that we may walk in truth. And so we give you great praise this morning. And yet we recognize, Father, that we need, we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning. We need the Spirit of God to bring forth the Word of God so that we as the people of God would would learn and live as you'd have us. So will you, O Holy Spirit, will you... um, Cause our spiritually blind eyes to be opened and our spiritually deaf ears to hear and our spiritually hard hearts to be softened and ready for all you have for us. We recognize and we confess, God, we confess that our hearts are not where they need to be this morning. We confess that they're 
there are things in our lives that are unhealthy for us spiritually. We confess that there are uh, areas of life where we are um, inviting sin and wrongdoing. We recognize that there is still sin in our lives that prevails over us on occasion. And so we just confess this before you. We just get it out there and we admit it. Because your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And we want to be made pure today. We want you. We want to learn more about you. We want to learn more about ourselves. We want to learn more about the role you have for us in our world. And so will you come and speak? For your people are listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Going back to last week, verse 4 found the Lord addressing Jonah's displeasure by asking what right he had to be angry. And the question, unfortunately, went unanswered at that time. Instead, still stubborn and sulking, Jonah made his way out of the city. Verse 5 records how he made a shelter for himself there to see what would become of the great city of Nineveh. This was not a good look for Jonah, obviously. Remember from the third chapter that Jonah had traveled a day's journey into the heart of Nineveh before warning the people of divine judgment to come. To his surprise, though, the Ninevites heeded the warning, turned from their evil ways, and called upon God's mercy. Broken and contrite, they mourned their sins, and God, seeing their repentance, graciously provided the mercy they sought. Hear this, a a very real revival swept through Nineveh, and Jonah literally stood at the heart of it. Yet rather than celebrate the saving of many souls, he abandoned them. He quit and made the full day's journey back to the outskirts of Nineveh, then beyond the city gates. Now imagine what Jonah must have seen while making his way out of Nineveh, and what he must have heard. As people called out to God and found divine grace in great supply, I picture the city streets crowding by the minute as more and more people offered prayers to God. Cries of repentance turning into tears of joy as hearts melted at the mercies of God. Men and women, young and old, singles and couples and entire families were coming to faith in God. And God was thrilled. The only thing more celebratory than the Ninevites' songs of salvation and the angels' shouts of praise was the joy that undoubtedly poured forth from the heart of God. Who wouldn't want what Jonah was privileged to experience? 
I have been laboring in the word and prayer for years. We all have as a church. We have prayed for more fruit, more salvations, more baptisms. We are extremely glad and grateful for those we have had, of course, for the immense blessings we've enjoyed together as a congregation along the way. But like you, I'd give almost anything to see, to take part in a revival in our church and community like that which spread throughout Nineveh. And yet there was Jonah wanting none of it. He had at least a full day's journey to think this through, to cool off from his anger, to embrace a change of heart. Instead, he utterly abandoned Nineveh and positioned himself outside of Nineveh to see what would become of Nineveh. It appears that he was secretly hoping that God, not Jonah, but God, would have a change of heart. That God would destroy Nineveh after all, just as Jonah had hoped all along. Distancing himself from what God was doing in Nineveh, he became a critic and and a spectator who just stubbornly wanted Nineveh to finally get its comeuppance. And what happens next tells the whole story. The story of Jonah's misaligned heart and of God's heart of love. In verses 6 through 8, God's providence is on display. Marked by the words appointed that shows up in each of these three word, three verses. Providentially, God appointed a plant and then a worm and then a scorching east wind. All three for Jonah's own good. Imagine how pleasantly surprised Jonah must have been when a lush plant unexpectedly began to grow up and around him. The plant grew at an accelerated rate, obviously, which no doubt convinced Jonah that it was God's doing. Imagine his joy at seeing it sprout up from the ground, joy which only increased as the plant grew in size to provide welcome shade from the eastern sun for the first time, get this, For the first time in the entire book, Jonah is happy. He didn't like it when God called him to Nineveh in chapter 2. He didn't like being in the belly of the fish in, I'm sorry, in chapter 1. He didn't like it when God called him to Nineveh in chapter 1. He didn't like being in the belly of the fish in chapter 2. And though he finally went to Nineveh, as God told him in chapter 3, clearly he didn't want to. He didn't like that assignment. He didn't anticipate or appreciate the Ninevites' repentance. And certainly he wasn't happy with God. And yet here, in chapter 4, for the very first time, because of a mere plant, he was exceedingly glad. Jonah knows the vine is a divine gift. And perhaps he therefore took it as a gesture of God's approval. Maybe God has had a change of heart. Maybe He has come to see it my way. Maybe the provision of the plant is God's way of vindicating my displeasure. 
Theologian Paul Mackerel speculates, As the new day dawns in verse 7, Jonah is completely oblivious to what awaits him. His anger has gone, and there is much in life to delight him. Perhaps his spirits soar even higher as he senses the wind picking up, and he wonders if this is a harbinger of the storm of destruction that's about to engulf Nineveh. But then the joy drains from him as he notices the leaves turning dry and brown before his very eyes. Maybe he inspects the base of the vine and realizes that it has been attacked. Perhaps he sees the worm and even stamps on it in frustrated anger. But it's too late. His beloved plan is gripped by death and he knows there's nothing he can do about it. As the vine shrivels and dies, so the protecting and binding canopy over Jonah's little shelter drops away. At the mercy of the increasing wind, the structure quickly disintegrates. Swept by swirling sand, the remnants of what once was his delightful abode are now covered and lost to view. This is not a cool breeze, but the hot Sirico wind that intensifies the heat. Jonah is left exposed in the searing temperatures. And just as the worm has attacked the plant, so now the sun gets up and attacks Jonah. He grows faint as the sun blazes down on his head. It's a case of severe sunstroke. The full horror is beginning to dawn on him. This sandstorm is not for Nineveh at all. It is for him. And at this point, we might wonder what God is up to and why He would bring blessing into Jonah's life only to remove it so quickly. Is this some kind of cruel trick, our world might say? Is God just toying with us down here? And here we come face to face with a sometimes hard but very meaningful truth. God cares so much about your long-term well-being that He's willing and loving and gracious enough to bring short-term hardship your way if that's what it takes. In love and for Jonah's own good, God was revealing some of the ugly inconsistencies within Jonah's own heart. The plant is an object lesson by which God reveals areas in our lives that need adjustment. The trials of life are ordained by God to spur our growth in God. Isn't it true that affliction has a way of softening hard hearts, of smoothing rough edges, of opening blind and ignorant eyes? How many of us can look back and testify that those seasons in our lives, when we grew the most, were often the most difficult. In real time, however, as those difficulties are unfolding around us, we're not always receptive to what God is doing. 
We love grace that saves. We love grace that saves. That's always good news. But sanctifying grace, on the other hand, especially when it comes through bouts of hardship, is not nearly as welcome. Jonah praised God for saving grace in chapter 2, and yet here in chapter 4, he faults God for the sanctifying work of that very same grace. Sadly, consumed by complaint, rather than learn and live, Jonah became even more enraged. And he asked to die. Hear this. Unrighteous anger is always a downward spiral. If left unchecked, we, like Jonah, can become angry with God, angry with our calling, angry with what's going on in the world, angry with the circumstances that don't go as we'd like, and so it's love on God's part to confront our anger and expose the hidden motives of our hearts. Jonah's complaint was thus met by divine compassion. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Here was a man, Jonah whose priorities were upside down. He cared more for the plant than people, more for his own temporal comfort than for the eternal well-being of others. He grieved grieved the loss of that which he enjoyed for just one day, yet couldn't care less for the men and women and children of Nineveh whose eternal destinies hung in the balance. The loss of this one shade-providing plant was more important to him than the saving of tens of thousands of souls. And we may scoff at Jonah's behavior or stand in disbelief at his overall attitude, but with some honest self-assessment, I think we'll see that we are sometimes guilty of essentially the same thing. Do we not think more about the temporal than the eternal? Do we not devote disproportionately more mental and emotional and physical energy toward our own creature comforts? As I thought through these questions this week, the answers are evident and they sting a little. Although I generally, generally care for others, for their present and future well-being, my day-to-day reality shows that I also care about far lesser things equally as much and sometimes more. Jonah did nothing to deserve the plant, nothing to make it grow, nothing to sustain its growth and vitality, but as with us and our idols, he became so attached so quickly. He enjoyed it for just one day, but but a day was all it took for him to grieve its loss. God, on the other hand, being 
sovereign and eternal had been thinking about Nineveh from before the foundations of the world. Nineveh's origins stretch back to Genesis and now at a time ordained in eternity past, a time worth celebrating, God's saving purposes for Nineveh were reaching their zenith. Was it fair? No, of course it wasn't fair. The Ninevites were a cruel and wicked people. As we discussed earlier in this study, and as God Himself alludes in the opening verses of chapter 1, and yet in the closing verses of chapter 4, we learn why. Why they were so far gone spiritually, and why God was so compassionate. It's because they were ignorant. They didn't know their right hand from their left, God said. The Bible talks about how Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers. Though still liable for their actions, they are spiritually blind to the grievousness of sin and to the reality that God in His justice will bring the sinner to account. But until then, God's compassion compels Him to move on their behalf. Both Jonah and God were moved by compassion. Jonah, you pity the plant, God said. And it's that very fact that justifies the pity I feel toward Nineveh. You see, it was an argument from lesser to greater. As Jonah was moved by the loss of one plant, how much more is God moved by the loss of of vast multitudes of the lost. And I love this because all creation groans for redemption. Even the animals of Nineveh found a safe place within the heart of God. Now, how does this speak into our life this morning? Given these things, what do we do? You know, compassion can be defined as sympathetic concern for the needs and sufferings of others, coupled with a desire to alleviate those same needs or sufferings. It's more than feeling sorry for someone. It's being moved to help them. And yet it runs deeper than service projects or charitable donations or even ministering in Jesus' name because isn't it true that it's possible to serve or give or minister all good things without ever truly engaging your heart? I mean, I can write a check to support a child in need. I can write a check each month to support a child in need, but if it becomes just another bill among many, then though it may be charity, it's not necessarily compassion. Compassion is entering into another's plight. Compassion is walking in their shoes. Compassion is understanding their need and doing something to meet it. 
Compassion is an investment of your heart. And what makes divine compassion so unique is that he who sees and knows our every need has willingly stepped into it. What God did for Nineveh then points ultimately to what God has done for us in Christ. Throughout his life and earthly ministry, people of all types were drawn to Jesus, weren't they? Some opposed him. They, couldn't just, they, they just could not fathom the concept of divine love and grace. And yet many followed him and believed him and trusted him and entrusted themselves to him. They sensed that Jesus was different. Not all could articulate why, but they sensed a divine quality about Jesus that truly demonstrated divine care and concern. People sensed and saw how Jesus entered into their various places of need to offer hope and healing and redemption from sin and its devastating effects. And when Jesus saw the crowds, we're told, He had compassion on them because... They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Therefore, nowhere is the wideness of God's compassion seen more clearly than in his outstretched arms on the cross. Though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So if you're looking for application this morning, the first thing is to acknowledge that God cares for you and calls you to Christ to confess Jesus as Lord. Don't miss that. Don't grow numb to that reality. He is Lord of all, and because He is, He is Lord of your life too. I want to encourage you this morning with this, that He who stepped into our world with divine love and care and compassion steps into yours even today. Come to Christ, even as He comes to you. And a second application involves furthering the cause of Christ by extending His divine care and compassion so that others can rejoice in His Lordship also. I titled this sermon as I did. Because maybe the real reason why we don't share our faith is because like Jonah, 
we lack heart-level compassion for the lost. So who or what or where is your Nineveh? Is it Tijuana? Afghanistan? Egypt? North Korea? Is it downtown? Or Old Town? Is it the low-rent apartment complex across town? Or the upscale neighborhood that masks its spiritual need with material things? Is it the person you know who doesn't know that you follow the Lord? Or the one who let you down or said things behind your back? Or the one who simply longs to know that someone cares? Is it a friend or family member? A colleague or classmate? Or a neighbor just a house or two down? Nineveh is wherever God has you, wherever God calls you, and to whomever He sends you. Nineveh may pull you out of your comfort zone, probably will. Nineveh is where people may be different than you, think differently than you, act differently than you, look differently than you. Nineveh may include people who have hurt you. Nineveh is where you're vulnerable. Make no mistake, Nineveh is risky. And yet we cannot ignore the fact that Jonah's story occurs within the context of God's mission in the world. And so does yours, and so does mine. Furthering Christ's cause means displaying compassion for others, including the lost, including the lost in our respective Ninevehs, who, as God says, does, do not know their right from their left. Jonah complained because he lacked compassion. And were we to watch the video of your life, which would we see more? Complaint or compassion? Maybe this book ends where we need to begin with renewed hope in the Lord who in the end was compassionate, not toward Nineveh only, but with Jonah as well. Compassionate as he is, God exposed Jonah's heart and revealed his own. And if I may, I think Jonah finally got it. I think the reason why we have the book of Jonah, why Jonah wrote this book, why the book ends in mid-thought, is because after thinking it through, Jonah eventually came around to celebrate God's compassion. 
to be more compassionate himself and to urge all who'd read his story to go and do likewise. Whatever it takes, therefore. Whatever it takes, however long it takes, and wherever God takes us, may we all take these things to heart and thus demonstrate God's heart for the lost and needy in our lives. Amen? Amen. Father, for these things, we need your help. Please strengthen us. Please continue to identify those areas in our lives where we are holding back, where we are cold and calloused. Maybe we need to Maybe we need, as, as you were with Jonah, maybe we need severe mercies to come our way before we finally understand. But God, here we are to say with one voice to essentially communicate and express whatever it takes, however long it takes, and wherever you take us, we're yours. Will you use us, empower us, and send us out into this world as those who are compassionate ourselves and display your divine care to the lost and needy? We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.